Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with this week's host, Helen Hillix. I'm Todd Benton, your co-host. Today's topic, start off 2017 with a powerful way to resolve conflicts with your children, students, and everyone. Listen as Dr. Ross Green shares about a practice called collaborative parenting. How many of us have become exasperated and angry while trying to parent our kids? Gee, I know I have. (laughs) How many teachers have turned to punishment to try and control the behavior of, quote, difficult children in the classroom and found out that it backfires? How many of us have become disillusioned in relating to each other in general, especially in this culture of divisiveness, contention, anger, and meanness? Listen in as host Helen Hillocks interviews Dr. Ross Green, a psychologist with some seemingly radical ideas about how to shift the energy between parents and children, teachers and students, and people in general. Believe it or not, his focus is collaboration. Now that's a word we don't hear enough of these days. Join (laughs) our guest and hear his clear and simple suggestions and his touching successes. We need this kind of inspiration in our lives right now, and Dr. Ross Green can help us all have an inner revolution and spread collaboration in our world. All right, Helen. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And I do want to welcome you, Dr. Ross Green, to Interrevolutionary Radio, and Happy New Year. Thank you. Same to you, and thanks for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure. I'm very excited about having you here and hearing about your experiences and having you share your perspective with us. But first, we have the news of the inner revolution. And we've got some really great stories today to share. Uh, One of the most exciting to me is sent by Anne Brennan, who said, and the topic of it, it's on NPR. The topic title is New York Governor Proposes Free College for Lower Income Students. Now, that is an interrevolutionary idea. And it is a proposal that offers subsidies to some 940,000 families so that their kids can attend college. And uh, uh, Governor Cuomo says that 70% of the jobs in the state require a college degree. So I think this is an unbelievably wonderful event, and I hope that it spreads across the country. It it says that it'll cost the state $163 million annually, and it will be in place by 2019 if if it passes the state's legislature, the New York Times reports. So it's an amazing, it's an amazing change in the way we treat education in our country and in the way people think about it. And there's a wonderful picture of Bernie Sanders and Governor Cuomo uh, on the NPR site that has the the article. And I just felt like that is some great hopeful news in this time of people uh, fearing that we're going to have our support systems taken away from us um, in the form of health insurance and so forth. So that was a very exciting article, and I'm glad to be able to report that. And another NPR news story is a peer recovery coach walks the front lines of America's opioid epidemic. And I loved this too. My daughter is a recovering heroin addict, and I just am so thrilled to hear any innovations that are happening to try to help people with this horrible, horrible experience of being an addict, especially to heroin. So 
this is this guy's name is Charlie Owens. And his battle with addiction started when he was only 16 and he moved to Lima, Iowa. And he it's part of many, many moves that he made as being part of a military family. And he got thrown out of his house and lived in alleys and turned to burglary and spent three years in prison. But after those, during those three years, he got sober. And after he got out, he really was dedicated to doing something with his life. And one year later, he started working as a peer recovery coach using his own experiences. And even though he's only 25 years old, he helps people that are, you know, twice his age or more. And the article just has lots of stories about people who say, you know, he has helped them so much and that he's there for them and how much difference it makes. And this reminds me of a lot of the addiction news that's coming out lately about how important connection is to sobriety and that yes it's a neurological addiction and so forth but that the the real cure if you want to call it that it's not really the right word but uh, just for the sake of discussion is is connection and that people really need connection and of course this is right out of the living with reality book that our founder of the interrevolution.org Beth Green has written about that suffering and pain are an inevitable part of human life but that connection makes every experience better and there are lots of studies coming out now that show that and I just thought this was another example of that that Charlie and his 90-minute appointments as a coach for these addicts some of whom have been addicted to heroin since before he was born and they are now sober and I just thought it was such a great story to uh coming out of this little bitty county in Ohio, that they have made this radical step of taking on this thrust of, of providing coaching for these people. So I, I thought that was very interrevolutionary and very hopeful. Hey, Helen, that's really cool. And I just saw a video that was um, on MTV a while back. It was actually, it went on YouTube in October and it's called Prescription for Change, Ending America's Opioid Crisis with Macklemore and uh, President Obama's also interviewed in it. And it was so cool because um, this, uh, they had a very similar woman um, that is working, I think in the Seattle area. And she, she just goes to see people that are homeless and are, you know, on either heroin because people start because they have some kind of pain issue and they start on opioids and then they transition to heroin. Right. It's just, it's just so, it's, it's amazing, but it's amazing the support and the, what the connection does. They showed like, you know, meetings like kind of like uh, AA meetings, but I guess they're, you know, a little different, (laughs) but um, it was just really cool to see that. Yeah, and you know, as you're speaking about that, I'm thinking how well this fits with um, Ross Green's approach to collaboration. You know, the non-judgmental approach, yes. and that you know it gets rid of that hierarchical kind of treatment that the doctor is going to fix you or that the parent's going to control you or whatever. And I, I love how that fits with our topic today. Uh, Another story about collaboration, as it happens, is another NPR story, which is unusual for us. We don't usually have three NPR stories in one show, but the the topic is about the water crisis, and it's called High Demand, Low Supply, Colorado River Water Crisis Hits Across the West. 
And it talks about how the Colorado River has fed growing cities from Denver to Los Angeles. And a lot of the produce and grocery stores across the country right now is grown with Colorado River water. And, and Imperial County, of course, in, in California. And now with climate change and severe drought, the river is reaching a crisis point and people are starting to have to really think about the reality of this. And two things struck me about this uh, interview. I'm not going to read any of it to you, but that they, they are talking about really facing the reality of the water crisis together and how Los Angeles County has agreed to share its water supply with other states and other cities without being mandated to do so. They are collaborating voluntarily. Now, you know, they probably would in the future be mandated, but they are preemptively sharing in a collaborative uh, attitude. And I just thought that was so hopeful again, you know, such a hopeful thing. And then they were talking about one of the water district board members in Imperial County, which is the food basket basically of the of the United States so much of the vegetables are and fruit that are grown in the United States are grown in the Imperial Valley which is a desert and without irrigation you know they their fields go fallow and this water board member was talking about how he had to make the decision to share some of the water from the Imperial Valley with San Diego and that he knew it was going to cause some of his good friends to have their fields go fallow. And, and that's exactly what happened. And he said it was the hardest decision he's ever made in his life and that he lost friends over that decision. But, but he still did what was for the highest good of all. And I, I really admired that. And so many of us are going to have to make those decisions that make us personally uncomfortable but we know they're for the highest good of all. And this reminds me, just one more reminder every week, we remind you about the principles of the inner revolution, our oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And this particular person certainly voted with those concepts in mind, the oneness that we all have to have water, we have to share it, the accountability that it comes down to making these difficult decisions and mutual support being what's for the highest good of all. So I loved that. I really thought this was a very hopeful article, even though it's sad and depressing, it's also hopeful. And the last story I want to talk about is from the New York Times, and it is entitled, One Man's Quest to Change the Way We Die. And it is about uh, Dr. B.J. Miller, a doctor who, when he was a sophomore, I think, in college, he and a bunch of friends had been out drinking and decided to go climb on the trains or something, and they were not protected properly from this one train that had high voltage, and the voltage went through his metal watch to his, through his left arm, and both he lost both his legs below the knee and his arm... Uh, you know, kind of halfway down his lower arm. And it it's just a great story about, and again, it's an inner revolutionary story because it talks about his own inner journey and how he was dedicated from the very beginning that he was not going to let this separate him from people and make him feel like he was not part of life anymore. And he came out of the surgery of having lost all his, those three limbs 
And his mother, who had been in a wheelchair with polio since he was a child, the first thing he said to her was, Mom, now we have more in common. And I just and he said he didn't feel that way, but he forced himself to really work that philosophy. And it led him eventually to working with people who are in hospice. And he focused on the connection again. And that's what's so thrilling about this work to me. And I, I worked with children dying of cancer as my first job out of graduate school, actually, and uh, at Children's Hospital in San Diego and UCSD Medical Center. And I'll never forget that experience. I did that for four years, and it totally changed my life. And I'm sure that it's changing his life and all the people that are working with him. And his idea is that the transition to death is part of life. It doesn't have to be a horrible, depressing experience. You can still have joy and celebration and and be treated like a, a regular living person until the moment that you're dead. So I thought that was a great article also and shows how many people are thinking this way about connection being the the linchpin to changing how we do things in the world in a much more satisfying way and bringing a lot more happiness into our lives. And I feel like that is the perfect entree into you, Dr. Green, who's given us permission to call him Ross. So I'll probably go back and forth between the two since I can't remember anything for five seconds. But I would like to say again, welcome to you, Ross. Thank you so much for being on our show. And I'd like to have you talk a little bit about, you know, what is collaborative parenting? And I know it goes a a long way beyond collaborative parenting because you work in the school system. So would you tell us about your work to start with and a little bit about the three-step process that you use? And we'll just start there. Sure. Well, once again, thanks for having me on. Uh, The official name of the model is Collaborative and Proactive Solutions, or CPS. Um, I think it first came into the public consciousness with my book, The Explosive Child, in 1998. Uh, And what has followed since are the books Lost at School and Lost at Found and the recently released Raising Human Beings, the first three were for parents and teachers of kids with behavioral challenges, but raising human beings is for all parents and all people um, and all kids. Um, And basically the model um, teaches kids and caregivers how to collaborate on solving the problems that are affecting a kid's life. Um, In behaviorally challenging kids, those problems cause challenging behavior. So it could be anything from difficulty turning the TV off to come in for dinner to difficulty taking a bath at night to difficulty waking up for school in the morning to homework to chores to you name it. Um, These are expectations that caregivers have for kids. And some kids, when they're having difficulty meeting those expectations, exhibit behaviors that are more severe than others. Um, If it's severe enough, of course, the kid might meet criteria for a psychiatric diagnosis, but I don't really worry too much about psychiatric diagnoses. I worry more about the problems that are causing kids to exhibit the behaviors that everybody's so busy talking about and trying to modify. 
And of course, when we're trying to modify a kid's behavior, we're doing it through strategies like stickers and timeouts and detentions and suspensions and other forms of reward and punishment, all of which have an element of power to them. And if you ask me what my life's mission is, is to help caregivers shift from power as the primary currency through which they are influencing kids to collaboration as the primary currency through which they are trying to have influence on kids. When we are collaborating with kids instead of on solving the problems that are affecting their lives, instead of simply trying to modify their behavior, and I think of behavior as the byproduct or just the signal or the fever, letting us know, it's the kid's way of letting us know, of course adults do it too, it's a human being's way of letting us know I'm having difficulty meeting expectations. And some human beings, when they're in that predicament, do things that are more mild, whining, pouting, sulking, crying. But other human beings, the ones I've been working with for about 35 years now, do things like hitting or spitting or biting or screaming or swearing or things that are even more severe than that. Um, So what the model does is it basically moves us away from behavior as the primary focal point and instead has us focusing on the problems that are causing those behaviors as the primary focal point and having caregivers engage kids in solving those problems collaboratively and proactively. And the nice thing about collaborative and proactive solutions is is that it is becoming a very well-researched model at this point. Um, There are numerous studies examining its effectiveness not only between parents and kids, but also in schools and in inpatient psychiatry units and residential and juvenile detention facilities. And in all those contexts, it turns out that solving problems with kids collaboratively and proactively is a very good way to make things better. And I'm sure that's not surprising to you all, but for many people, um, it comes as a bit of a shock. Yeah, it, it certainly it certainly isn't surprising to me. I, I'd like to ask you a, a bit about, I've noticed this trend that you're talking about, and I'm sure that's why there is a preponderance of research being done right now, because it's not just your work that is shifting out of that hierarchical model, is it? Um, there, there is the whole restorative justice movement and the parent effectiveness training um, book and program is still going strong, as well as love and logic. You know, there are, it seems like there is all of a sudden, and, and, and love, um, parent effectiveness training has been around for 40 years. And I know it's not exactly the same as what you're talking about, but I'm not trying to say that at all. But I'm just trying to say it feels wonderful that there seems to be a collective movement away from that reward and punishment model more toward collaboration as you're talking about and proactive approaches. Have you seen that and to what do you attribute that, Ross? Um, I think that there are a lot of former kids, we call those adults now, who didn't, who who, who weren't so enthusiastic about the power approach to things, didn't think it was necessary, um, have thought about what relationships with caregivers could have been like and communication with caregivers could have been like if um, power had not been the primary ingredient. 
And I think that, so I think there's a lot of adults who um, have looked back at the way they were raised and um, think that things could have been different and that things could have been a whole lot more collaborative and that caregivers could have used a whole lot less power to have influence. Um, But I also think sort of at a more global level, um, and I know that some of the articles, you know, some of your focus is on a more global scale, um, how people are reacting to the current state of affairs and how people are treating each other in politics and otherwise. I think that um, there are a lot of people out there who um, have been on the downside of power have felt that their voices have not been heard, are not being heard. I think that we are seeing some human beings making sure that their voices are going to be heard, but in ways that are violent and in ways that are harmful to other people. I I think that those actions are frequently born of frustration over having been on the receiving end of power. And one of the things I'll say about human beings is is that we do want our concerns to be heard. We do want our voices to be heard. And we want to make sure that our concerns are addressed. And, you know, one of the things that we were hearing about the recent presidential election in the United States is that there's a lot of people who are feeling that their voices are not being heard. Yep. Um, I think there's a lot of people, you know, I think that there are good reasons. I think that every ethnic group and every people has things that they can point to that have um, of times where they have been on the receiving end of the wrong end of power, have felt oppressed, have felt that they came out on the wrong end of the stick, have felt that their voices weren't heard, and have felt that their concerns weren't addressed. And I think that there's a lot of that going around these days. And I think that that is having people feel a whole lot more enthusiastic about being collaborative with each other and the necessity of it. Um, I think a lot of people are tired of the power dynamic and especially tired of the gamesmanship over power that gets played out in our government. I couldn't agree more, Ross, and and you sound a lot like Beth Green. I know you're not related, but um, our founder, um, when she talks about the fact that, yes, people need to know they matter. And I think you're so right in every single thing you shared, we we could agree with that, that people need to be heard, they need to know that they matter, and that because of all of the contentiousness and divisiveness of this political season and the events in the world, people are finally ready to realize that collaboration is the only answer. So that's you gave a very global and wonderful answer to the question about why why do you think that there are many movements like collaborative, proactive resolutions um, and systems that that are uh, you know coming out right now. You, you gave a great answer for that. And I'd like to ask you, what has been your personal experience and your own experience of learning that has led you to the awareness of this, of a need for such a process that you have developed? Well, I used to, um, I was trained to um, teach parents how to use rewards and punishments to 
modify the behavior of their kids. And um, so I, uh, my, edu- my uh, graduate education was based in that approach to things. And to tell you the truth, I'm very glad that I was trained that way because, number one, um, it gave me a good scientific grounding, um, which I think I'm very glad that I have, and a very good level of analysis. But I have moved away from the carrot and stick approach to things, Yeah, <laughs> mostly because um, I also think it's helped me speak to the concerns of people who are still being trained that way, because I was trained that way, and I know where they're coming from, and I know what their doubts are about yes. collaborating. And so um, I'm really glad that I had that training, and I'm really, you know, um, but I've also moved on. And so what makes a whole lot more sense to me these days is collaboration. I, you know, I was teaching parents how to hold their kids in time out and how to lock their kid in the bedroom if the kid didn't comply with adult directives. And, you know, my experience as a clinician was that, um, well, it wasn't working as well as I was told it would. And the data tend to bear that out. You know, carrots and sticks is an empirically supported approach to treatment, but what we also know about it is that um, it doesn't work for a lot of the people to whom it's applied, and in some instances, and this was my experience, some instances made things worse. Well, I didn't get into one of the helping professions to make things worse. I got into one of the helping professions to make things better, and I find that everybody who's in one of the helping professions, whether that's mental health or parenting or education, all of us are helpers, and what helpers do is we help. And the last thing a helper would want to do is make things worse. So I started experimenting with collaboration. I, you know, um, there are definitely similarities between collaborative and proactive solutions and parent effectiveness training. I wish that I could say that Thomas Gordon's work had a large influence on mine, but I didn't stumble across his work until I had created my model and then discovered that there were some wonderful parallels there. Um, And, you know, other models that are similar are models like conscious discipline and positive parenting. Um, So there's some other models out there that do share this theme of collaborating with kids. But my experience was uh, early on as a clinician, and of course I could reflect back on my own childhood, um, collaboration is a much better way to go than power. But I've also taken a close look at why caregivers sometimes end up in a power stance. We sometimes are confused between having an expectation and making absolutely certain that that expectation gets met and how to go about doing that. And there are many caregivers in this world who really were not raised collaboratively. They were raised on power. Right. Whereas what they frequently is all they know. And so the collaborative territories feel very much like a foreign country to them until they sort of get used to the language and get used to the process and start to trust it. A lot of people regress back to power because it's all they know and because they want to feel like they have a sense of control over how things are going. Especially (laughs) especially when they're when they're upset and anxious. I'm a I'm a marriage and family therapist by profession, and you know I so resonate with what you're saying ab- about people's frustrations and how, you know, all of us resort back to you know when in stress we regress 
And exactly what you said, back to something that we were all raised with, um, was that hierarchical notion that power is something that you, and of course, being on the receiving end of it, then when you grow up, you don't want to be on the receiving end of it anymore. You want to be on the power end of it. And it it is a very dysfunctional and painful dynamic. Um, I'd like you to explain the steps um, of, you know, because I want to leave the audience with something that they can actually begin to practice. And certainly I'd like you to, to talk about your website just before I forget, I know you're going to do this at the end of the show, but mention mention it now. Mention where they can find some tools and some steps and tell us what those simple steps are. And then I've got a bunch of other questions for you. Great. Well, the website is, is livesinthebalance.org. So L-I-V-E-S in the balance.org. Everything on the website is free, which is often astounding to people. Who, who can't believe that I'd be giving them all away for free, but I am. There's things I make money on, but I wanted to make sure that there was a treasure trove of free resources on this model available to people, and that website is that treasure trove of free resources, and it is truly loaded with free resources on the collaborative and proactive solutions model. Um, so let's get to the steps, but before I get to the steps, um, I should say one other thing, and that is that one of the things that you were mentioning just before you talked about the website is that people tend to be at their worst in the heat of the moment. Here's the good news. The good news is that the expectations that a kid is having difficulty meeting are highly predictable. Um, this, This is not the first time the kid's had trouble brushing his teeth at night. Right. This is not the first time the kids had trouble coming in to dinner from watching the TV. This is definitely not the first time the kids had trouble doing his chores and definitely not the first time the kids had trouble doing his homework. <laughs> the beautiful thing about that is there's absolutely no reason for us to find ourselves in the heat of the moment when we are at our worst. Right. If, if those unmet expectations, and I call those unsolved problems, but those are synonyms, unmet expectations and unsolved problems are the exact same thing. If they're predictable, then we can identify them proactively and we can solve them proactively so that there's almost no reason for us to find ourselves trying to deal with a problem in the heat of the moment anymore. And I had to talk about that first because now I can talk about the three steps. I love that. I love that you brought that up. Well, it's absolutely crucial because if we're worked in the heat of the moment, then if there's a technology for getting us out of the heat of the moment, um, and that technology does exist, people will find it on the website. It's called the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems. It is a single-sided, single-sheet of paper that people can complete fairly rapidly to help them identify the unsolved problems, the highly predictable unsolved problems that have been sitting under their noses for a very long time, but they've also been fighting about in the heat of the moment for a very long time. Right. (laughs) Completely unnecessary, right? The definition of insanity, right? (laughs) Indeed. So we don't want people thinking about these three steps as being done in the heat of the moment, although they can be done that way. We mostly want people thinking about these three steps as being done proactively because we have proactively identified all those unsolved problems, and we've even prioritized the ones that we want to start working on first. 
Love step it. number one is called the empathy step. This is where we are gathering information from the kid about his or her concern, perspective, point of view on the unsolved problem we're talking with the kid about proactively. Um, kids have information we badly need. Information about what's hard. Information about what's getting in the way. Their concern, their perspective, their point of view. Um, crucial to get that information. Number one, this kid needs to feel heard. Number two, there isn't a snowball's chance that we're going to be able to address this kid's concerns unless we know what this kid's concerns are. Now, the main impediments to doing that, that first step, the empathy step, is that first of all, we adults think we already know what the kid's concerns are, so we don't really see the point in asking. I cannot tell you how many jaw-dropping moments I have seen caregivers have in the empathy step once they finally get the kid talking, when they discover that what they thought was getting in the kid's way on a particular unsolved problem is not what was getting in the kid's way on a particular unsolved problem. The empathy step is crucial. Um, this is where kids feel heard. Absolutely. This is where kids' concerns get identified. This is where kids feel empathized with. This is where adults learn how to listen. And this stop is making where, assumptions. <laughs> correct. This is where kids learn how to figure out what their concerns are. I cannot tell you how many violent acts are committed by human beings who didn't have the slightest idea what their concerns were, and even if they did, didn't know how to put them into words. Yeah. The second step is the define adult concerns step. This is where the adult is entering his or her concerns into consideration on the same unsolved problem. Adults have very important concerns as well. The hardest part about this step is that adults frequently don't think about what their concerns are, they head straight for their solutions, which they then are busy imposing. Right, in which the children need to hear because children do care what your concerns are, but if you just jump over their concerns and your concerns, then you're losing that opportunity to connect. Well, I find that kids have only one condition on being willing to listen to our concerns, and that is that we're willing to listen to theirs. Absolutely. But I find that even kids who've been imprisoned, even in kids who've had the hardest lives you can imagine, they are willing to listen to your concerns if caregivers are finally willing to listen to theirs and make sure that theirs get addressed. Yes. It's a pretty human thing. Yes. Um, the, the define adult concern step is where kids learn to empathize. Kids learn to listen. The define adult concern step is where adults learn to figure out what their concerns are and how to put their concerns into words. Adults feel so much pressure to come up with ingenious solutions to problems that they really know very little about. And what I like to do is absolve adults of the pressure to do anything ingenious. The only thing adults <laughs> need to do that's ingenious is know how to solve problems collaboratively and proactively. And I love that. It's in that process. Love that. I, I think you're, you've really struck on something I am definitely going to use more is, a, is to relieve people of the need to believe that they have to prove how smart they are. Well, not only how smart they are, but how strong they are. And of course, yes, 
we have an interesting definition of strength. It usually involves power. Mm -hmm. Um, I like to try to impress people with the power of collaboration. Believe it or not, I find that collaborating takes a whole lot more strength than power. Oh, absolutely. Or force. So the third step is called the invitation. This is where kid and adult are collaborating on a solution, but a solution that has to meet two criteria. This is the definition of a good solution. Number one, it's got to be realistic, meaning both parties can truly do what they're agreeing to do. I cannot tell you how often I see both kids and adults signing off on solutions they know they or the other cannot do. Yeah. But even more important than that is that, and this is crucial, this is crucial in so many ways, the solution has to be mutually satisfactory, meaning it truly and logically addresses the concerns of both parties. What I like, this all begins with how we parent our kids. My opinion is that if you teach power, power is what you get later. Yeah. And just to go political one more time, which I'm always trepidatious about doing because people don't usually look to me for politics, but what we have uh, in the USA right now is ping pong democracy. Absolutely. Eight years of Barack Obama and... Um, some people were happy and some people weren't. And now we're going to get whatever number of years of Donald Trump and the people who are unhappy are now going to be happy and the people who are happy are now going to be unhappy. Um, and Donald Trump has come in saying that he's going to reverse just about everything that Barack Obama did in the last eight years. And that is not my definition of progress. My definition yeah, I, I of progress. I agree more. My definition of progress is coming up with solutions that are mutually satisfactory and that are not merely about power, getting reelected, um, winning or capturing the White House, um, that's all about power. Yeah. That's the third step. Um, solutions that are arrived at collaboratively, solutions that are realistic and mutually satisfactory tend to be a whole lot more durable and a whole lot more effective than well, solutions absolutely. that are I mean, what you're right. saying, Ross, is not just ping pong politics, but also what we were describing before that is ping pong parenting, is that, you know, you teach power, just like you were saying, and then when they get bigger, they're going to be trying to grab the power. And then, you know, when they are weak, somebody else is going to grab the power. And it's exactly the state of the world. And it's the, as, as the, the macrocosm and the microcosm is the family situation. And I'm, I love that you brought politics into it because it's exactly the same on that macro level. Yeah. There is no way around it. We have to learn to collaborate until we have solutions that are, are beneficial to the whole, to everyone involved. And bless you That's for teaching correct. this kind of thing, because I, I grew up with that kind of model of parenting, and I fell right into the trap when I was, you know, first being a parent, and still, I still fall into it. So I'm so happy you're on with us today. <laughs> so I can, you know, I've been working on it, but um, it's, you know, it, to have a comprehensive way to go about it is really, really cool. It's, a, you know, a lot of people have a lot of fun with it, but, you know, aside from getting out of the heat of the moment, the other thing that parents and educator, any caregiver 
we all often not only feel like we have to come up with an ingenious solution, we also feel that we must do it immediately. We mm. feel that we feel it's got to happen now. And yes. boy, you know, even with my own kids, I've felt, and I'm, I'm collaborative to the core at this point, but even with my own kids, I've sometimes felt the tug to solve the problem now. Like there was some tremendous urgency to it. And, you know, being in the heat of the moment contributes to that. But even when you're not in the heat of the moment, there is this tug that you must solve the problem immediately. And the reality is most realistic and mutually satisfactory solutions aren't going to get come up with immediately. They take time. It takes time to come up with a good solution, um, which means that we also need to not only get out of the heat of the moment, we also have to take our time because the vast majority of unsolved problems are nowhere nearly as urgent as they feel when we're in the thick of them. Right, and probably not nearly as simple as we think they're going to be. And we come up with a solution that is collaborative that we believe is going to work and we try it out for a while and then we see some weakness in some aspect of it, I'm sure, and then come back and and do the process over and over, right? Right. And it's not uncommon that the first solution doesn't solve the problem durably, but that's real life. That's exactly Um, right. In real life, good solutions come after the ones that didn't work out so well, and we learn from them. And that's how life works. Um, and, you know, the other thing I was reminded of it the other day, I don't remember who I was talking to. I, I, oh, I have a very close colleague who was in the Galapagos Islands, and we were reminiscing about Darwin um, and survival of the fittest. And a lot of people have the misconception that survival of the fittest refers to power. Yes. But survival of the fittest actually refers to the ability of a species to adapt. Yes. Yes, that's a that's a great point. We think of it as a competitive paradigm, but it's not. That's right. It's your ability to adapt to your circumstances. Um, I hope that the human species can adapt to current circumstances. Otherwise, it's going to get ugly around here. Yeah, it's already ugly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, unfortunately, there is some urgency on that macro level to, to get our heads out of our proverbial butts and, uh, you know, start doing exactly what you're suggesting. Um, I'd like to ask you, Ross, about what are, besides the urgency matter and the being uh, raised in hierarchical paradigms and being so addicted to power, what are some of the other common challenges that people face when trying to implement this program? They're not good at it yet. Um, and people like to be good at things immediately these days, and this is definitely an acquired art. This is something that takes practice. It takes going back to it again. Often it feels, you know, when you are being unilateral, um, you can do something that feels very immediate, Mm -hmm. and you can at least be under the misimpression, uh, or at least the temporary impression that you've actually solved something, when the reality is you've probably solved nothing and probably taken two steps backward in the degree to which the kid is actually going to be willing to collaborate with you on the same problem another time. Right. Um, but 
Um, and a lot of people wonder about the time issue. They think it takes a lot of time to solve a problem. Um, but that's only an early reaction to the model. Um, once people actually start doing the model and getting good at it, they start saying that the model saves them time because they start reflecting on just how much time. You know, if you've been fighting with your kid about brushing his teeth at night for three years, you've been spending an enormous amount of time on trying to get your kid to brush his teeth over the last three years. I guarantee solving that problem collaboratively and proactively isn't going to take but a fraction of the amount of time that's been spent on it over the last three years and never even got it solved. Absolutely. And not to mention the emotional angst that lingers in between these episodes when you're using domination as the, as the uh, tool. Yes. So I, find I, some parents, I find that some parents wonder if they will still be an authority figure when they're collaborating. The answer is, of course, more of an authority figure than you could have ever imagined being, but a different definition of authority. Yes. They wonder if they'll still be in control. They wonder if they're still going to be able to have expectations. You can't run a classroom without expectations. You can't run a family without expectations. Of course, you still have expectations. It's the one the kid isn't meeting that you need to solve. If a kid is meeting an expectation, there is no problem to solve because it's a met expectation. So those are some of the things that I run into. But Truth is, once people get over those humps and allow themselves to get good at solving problems with kids, there's no turning back. How I love what you're saying, and of course I completely agree. Um, how much do you think instant gratification, you mentioned, you know, we want to be good at everything right away and we want an instant uh, solution. Um, how much do you think that that, it impacts the situation, and how much of that do you attribute to ego, the, as opposed to the the awareness of the whole? Um, I don't think most people were raised to be aware of the whole. I do think that it is very easy to descend into an I'm right and you're wrong mentality. And I think when it comes down to I'm right and you're wrong, um, we stop listening to each other. We stop taking each other's concerns into account. We stop trying to come up with mutually satisfactory solutions. Um, how much of that is ego? I do think that there is ego involved in feeling right. But I also think that we train kids up on right versus wrong at a very early age when power and hierarchy and being unilateral are the primary currencies of our interactions with them. We're, we're doing right and wrong almost from the get-go. Um, if we were being collaborative from the get-go, if we were training kids up, and this is what I talk about in Raising Human Beings, mm -hmm. if we're training kids up on collaboration, there is no right. There is no wrong. Everybody's entitled to their concerns, and everybody has the right to expect that their concerns will be addressed. There's no right or wrong in there. There's, well, in the words of the uh, songwriter, uh, there's just me and you, there's just you and me, and we just disagree. 
<laughs> but there ain't no good guys and there ain't go, no bad guys. Um, when you're collaborating, there's no good guys, there's no bad guys, there's no right, there's no wrong. There's just the legitimate concerns of both parties and a very strong desire to make sure that those concerns get addressed. Mm. Yes. And, you know, I again, I love what you're saying, Ross, and it's so in alignment with the you know, the principles of the inner revolution with the oneness, accountability, and mutual support in that we, we cannot be focused on ourselves only any longer. I mean, that really is wh- what has led us to the brink of, of human disaster is the focus on our instant gratification and greed and what's in it for me and so forth. And I agree with you that we are raised on that hierarchy of power and we can't wait until we get to be in that place of power. And it certainly takes an inner revolution. I mean, that's really what you're teaching people is to make an inner revolution because they have to change the way they're thinking. They have to change the way they're perceiving power and they have to change the way they're thinking about everything. Really, you're you're dismantling a whole paradigm of of human behavior, and it's a huge challenge, but one that you've taken on. And I so admire you for that, and I really admire the the generosity. I, I went on your website, and you're absolutely right that it is chock full of free tools. And I really want to encourage people to go there to Lives in Balance. Lives in the balance. Right. Lives in the balance. Yeah. Is it dot org? Dot org, yeah. Okay. So lives in the balance dot org, you know, has wonderful tools for how you can actually begin co-creating a, a an inner revolution and changing the way you think about things. And, Helen, I have one thing. Um I read some of the results, like I know you've had peer-reviewed studies and so forth, and in the results in schools of the lack of kids being suspended again, I was just like, I was startled. I was like, wow. Um, Do you have some of those at your fingertips that you can share with people? I I think that would be good for people to hear. You know, I don't have the exact numbers memorized, but in in many of the schools that have studied the effectiveness of the model... Um, they have dramatically reduced discipline referrals and uh, detentions and suspensions in uh, therapeutic facilities. They have significantly reduced recidivism and rates of restraint and uh, solitary confinement. Um, boy, you know, when you, when you treat um, kids like human beings, um, you stop having to pin them to the ground and put them in padded rooms. Man, what what else can you say uh, about that other than it's about time? And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Ross, that um, you didn't hear about Thomas Gordon's work until you were way into your own. And that, to me, corroborates the idea that many people are kind of receiving the same message, you know, that human evolution is on this track and that whatever you believe in, whether it's divine intervention or just your higher self or collective consciousness, whatever it is, but that these similar ideas come to so many people at the same times all over the world without their knowledge of each other, I think is a wonderful proof of evolution, if you will, and Darwin's adaptation, you know, that we are trying to adapt and, and these ideas are coming to us to help us do so. 
Um, and it doesn't take a thing away from your work or from anybody else's who's coming up with similar things. Um, I was very heartened to recently hear uh, that the San Diego Unified School District has now embraced restorative justice as the way rather than reward and punishment. You know, that's gone. It's all about restorative justice, which is it isn't exactly what you're talking about, but it's certainly taking a step in the right direction. And I, I noticed that we have two minutes to go. Uh, Todd, do you want to read the, the e-card for the next show? And then we'll come back and give you a big hug of gratitude, Ross. You've been a wonderful guest and so helpful to our listening audience. And I hope you'll put this podcast on, you know, Todd can send you or I can send you the podcast when it's up and you can put it on your website as as another offering to the folks that come there. So, Todd, good, good. Thank you, Russ. So next week, how many, I'm sorry, let me try that again. How many resolutions have we already broken this year? How can we stop breaking them? Ask Beth Green. So we figured out that life would be better if we didn't do or say certain things, or we think life would be better if we did or said other things, but we blew it and now we feel bad. What did we, what did we do that we shouldn't have, or what didn't we do that we promised ourselves we would? If that's you, you're not alone. Lots of us are in the same boat. So let's see how host Beth Green can help. First, let's look at one of your resolutions and see why or if you should have made it in the first place. Len, let's noodle on why you broke it. The answer could be amazing. In this show, as always, Beth will use her uncanny intuition to help us see ourselves more clearly. It's not an easy fix, but it could be a big step in the direction of turning your lives around. Turning our lives around, really. So in, so call in, and if you can get... Oh, so let me say, let me say that again. So call in, if you can, and get her direct support. And if you don't call in, tune in anyway. You'll probably hear someone with a challenge very much like yours. So let's have a good laugh together and see if we can't help each other have a great year. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.